Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Local Japan Podcast. If you recall from last episode, I was singing high praises for this other podcast called Founders, where the author or the host does an exploration of biographies and autobiographies of great founders throughout history. And I've been learning so much from that podcast and about business and how the greatest entrepreneurs to have done it, how they, how their minds work, how they went through their business processes. And、uh, some things I've been reflecting on is just how humans are very good at overcomplicating things and also learning about this concept of focus on get, getting rid of all the distractions in your life that you put up naturally and to just focus on your craft. I've tried to implement some things in my life to, to simplify. So, for example, I recently deactivated the Instagram account to the local Japan podcast, also Facebook. And I even flirted with the idea of stopping the podcast, but I'll tell you why I'm justifying this in a moment. But in terms of the social media, is,、uh, there's, there's three things I'm trying to accomplish with the social media、um, deactivation. The first one is obvious, which is that oftentimes it's a waste of time where you end up scrolling. We, we, all, we all know this. So that's the first one.、Uh, but the second one is the creation of content is actually really time consuming for me to create the reels, create the photos, create the text. And the impact is really quite low because I think the amount of people who follow the Instagram and then they end up learning about the podcast and becoming a follower and listener of the podcast, I think it's really low. I don't really think it happens very often.、Um, and so I think it was a low impact activity. So, really high in labor cost and time cost and low、uh, return on that. So, that's another reason to get rid of it. And the third one is an experiment with the idea of word of mouth. So, the, I think the idea is that I have, that I've been learning about from all these great business people that I've been studying, is word of mouth is the strongest form of marketing. So, rather than market through Instagram or market through advertising or just market through your followers, people who love what I'm doing. I think I've actually seen that in the statistics that I follow on, on my podcast、uh, producer software on Substack. Yeah, I, I've seen that things have started to grow,、uh, especially with that last podcast with Ray Yamada、uh, about、uh, Konichi Value. It was actually quite a popular episode and I didn't promote it at all. And so, and it's also great. I don't have to worry about that Instagram. I don't, I don't have to worry about expending all my time on social media. I can just focus on what I actually love doing, which is the podcast, and just focus on that alone. And then if people like it, they like it. If they don't, so be it. I think、I'll, hopefully the podcast can just grow through word of mouth. That would be, that would be superb. So that's what I am, co- am going to test with this、uh, new kind of. Renewed vision of how I want to work. So, the other thing, going back to focus, it's important to focus in your craft. And so, in my case, what I'm trying to do is to build, rebuild old Japanese homes. And I've been starting to do that as a volunteer at this carpentry group in Kobe,、um, transitioning into a part time worker where they actually offered to pay me, which is very generous of them. And so, I would. Went from volunteering my time to actually getting a little cash. And then also, there's this event that's happening later this month on the 29th that I will go to. And it's an all day event happening with some people who I know in the real estate industry here in Kobe. And then also, of course, with the head carpenter. And it's an event on one, how to search for properties, and then two, how to use tools for DIY, for construction. So it's a perfect event for me. Couldn't have, couldn't have asked for a better event. And by embedding myself in this community, I'm naturally meeting these people. And so things are coming along there. So, based off of this idea of focus, I should be focused 100% on this honing my skills, gaining information, gaining connections, building relationships. And so I was thinking, if I should just I should spend all my time on this, then maybe the podcast is an ephemeral, unnecessary thing that I've been wasting my time with. That was the thought that went through my head. But 
the way I've thought about this is that I think in the early parts of the podcast, the podcast was a way to show off, which was a, a mistake in the way that we were framing the podcast. And also the way that we did social media was was not good, I think. We were do, do, doing too much um, showing of me, me, me. Like, look at the books that we're reading. Look at the people we're interviewing. Look at the things that we're trying to accomplish. And it was a bit inward-facing, I think. And like, Look at this journey that we're on. But I think the, the proper way to focus it is to be selfless. The proper way to sh- use this medium is to serve others and so that's the way i'm starting to frame the podcast in my mind and i think that's also why it's becoming more successful so my job is to provide content for you to learn so that you can better your understanding of japan japanese culture japanese real estate japanese construction selfishly i'm using this as a platform for myself to learn to better myself to hone my craft but then frame it as a, a tool for learning, an educational tool for you, because that is what it is as well. To support the podcast, the research I do, and the interviews that I organize, you can head on over to localjapan.substack.com. The link is also in the show notes, where you can go to Substack and subscribe for free. And, and optionally, you can subscribe to a membership which would support me. The book that we're going to get into today is titled The Genius of Japanese Carpentry, uh, Secrets of an Ancient Craft, written by Asby Brown. I've been really curious about this author since I first met him at the Minka Summit this April. I saw him at a panel, and that's when I first learned about his prolific work in architecture and in writing about Japanese architecture. He's an expert in the field, and so he's the perfect person to study. I think one good reminder about the book is Asby Brown is recounting his experience from the 1980s. The book was released in 1989, but I think a lot of the content of the book occurs in the 80s. So it's I think it's really great to imagine that world, which is almost for almost almost yeah, so 45 years ago, to imagine that world while you while we're listening and reading the book together. I think it really brings it to to life to be able to play that movie in your head. So without further ado, enjoy Asby Brown's Genius of Japanese Carpentry, Secrets of an Ancient Craft. Part of the value system symbolized by Shinto beliefs stresses love of and respect for wood as a living organism. A form of animism, Shinto ascribes consciousness and personality to natural forces such as wind and rain, sun and moon, geological formations, and non-human living things. Certain mountains are held sacred, as are parts of forests and even particular trees. The presence and will of these deities, or kami, pervaded everything. Without the permission and assistance of the gods, Rice will not grow, woman will not conceive, and a building will not stand. These beliefs are celebrated to this day in the form of Shinto ceremonies for planting, marriage, and construction, to name a few, and although a diminishing number of people observe the old rituals, natural phenomena are still accorded a measure of respect. The almost religious reverence for wood is, fortunately for us, among the many traditions that have stood the test of time. A tree, like other natural phenomena, is believed to possess a spirit. And a carpenter, when he cuts down a tree, incurs a moral debt. One of the themes that runs through Japanese culture is the belief that nature exacts from man a price for coexistence. A carpenter must put a tree to uses that assure its continued existence, preferably as a thing of beauty to be treasured for centuries. There is a prayer that Nishioka would recite before laying a saw to a standing tree. It goes in part, I vow to commit no act that will extinguish the life of this tree. Only by maintaining this pledge does the carpenter repay his debt to nature. That is the little excerpt from the book I'm going to discuss with you today called The Genius of Japanese Carpentry, written by Asby Brown. Asby Brown is an architect, 
born and raised in New Orleans, but he's been living in Japan since uh, the 1980s, I think. So for many decades, fluent in Japanese. And I had the, the pleasure of meeting him very briefly, actually, at the Minke Summit last year in April. So I'm happy to finally get to dig into his work. And actually, I think this book, according to his own words, is his life's work. So we'll be in good company today as we go through this. The book is a recollection of his time studying and shadowing under a Japanese temple carpenter. The carpenter's name is Tsunekazu Nishioka, who passed in 1992, just a few years after this book was first published. And I think the book has great value because it offers two, I think it fulfills two different roles. One is it tells the story of Asby Brown working under Nishioka during the reconstruction of this complex in this temple in Nara called Yakushiji. Yakushiji, yes. The second role that it offers is something like a manual for actually how to build a temple using traditional techniques and processes. I think when we take a step back and think about this book from the from a broader sense of history, I think we should be very grateful to have it because if you thought about just a hundred years ago, uh, a book like this probably would never exist. The number of bilingual authors, let alone translators from English to Japanese, was very very rare. And for someone to be embedded inside the life and the culture of a group of carpenters and and temple carpenters, no less, is also very rare. And then to be able to to read this in English and to have the whole process laid out for you and to have very detailed photos of joinery and the progressive building of the complex uh, written in plain English. You know, this kind of book is uh, is an invaluable resource for those of us who are, are very interested in this subject. So I think it's a very valuable piece of work. And I encourage you all, if you're interested, to, to go buy the book. So first, this is how Asby Brown discusses the way his relationship with Nishioka first began. It is not often that a new temple building, to say nothing of a large complex, is built in the old way in Japan today. I feel truly fortunate to have had the opportunity to observe such an undertaking close at hand, something which would have been impossible without the permission of master carpenter Nishioka. At the outset, there was no book planned. I approached Nishioka after a long, labyrinthine process of leads, dead ends, and introductions to people who might obtain introductions to others who might be able to get me an appointment with the master himself. As an awkward American youth with an interest in Japanese carpentry, clutching a handful of slides of my own timber framing work in New England. On learning of my hope to return later to Japan to study more about its wooden architecture, Nishioka offered to take me on as an apprentice. I was shocked, to put it mildly. More shocked, in fact, than flattered, for I knew even then that an apprenticeship, if it was to be worthwhile, should last at least seven years. I doubted I could afford to spend so long in Nara. Besides, absolute obedience is not one of my strong points. Despite my refusal of his generous offer, Nishioka helped me receive a grant from the Japanese Ministry of Education for study and research as a graduate student in the architecture department of the University of Tokyo. In addition, he gave me carte blanche to roam around the workshops and construction sites to take photographs. Most significantly, he frequently took time out to answer my questions, which I fear served primarily to reveal the true dimensions of my ignorance. I say answer my questions, which is perhaps true of the simpler ones about names, dates, terms, and so on, but for the more probing questions, those concerning the whys of his motivation and the hows of his work, while I usually received something by way of reply, I never got answers. His responses were almost invariably in the form of subtle hints that I was not being observant enough. So just again, just goes to show what a unique experience this is. And so I'm just very grateful for Asby Brown for writing it and for publishing it and giving it for all of us to read. In order to know what should be built, Nishioka seemed to say it was first necessary to observe what already existed, 
what was worth preserving, what sense, what atmosphere should be duplicated in a new construction. It is possible for a code or formula to be followed to the letter and it result in a work devoid of life, inert. This is the crucible of tradition, not formula, but innate sense, not design, but patterns of action and use. Only these can lead to the preservation of those fragile constructs we call culture. I love the philosophy that Asby Brown was able to extract from Nishioka and, uh, and, and what he's written in the book. Because like I said, the book is in part an instruction manual to show you how the process is done with great photos. It's very photo heavy, especially in the latter half. But it's also part story. And you need to have this depth of knowledge and, re and religious context and spirituality in order to actually build the thing because they're totally intertwined. So if you're someone who just wants to follow the formula to a T, you might be able to build something. But it's interesting, the human eye is good at perceiving when things are authentic and when they're fake. There's one section of the book that is actually very pertinent to this. It's later in the book, so I'm going to skip ahead. But I think it's, it's good to bring up now. Okay, here it is. The ultimate aim of the Yakushichi project, however, was not restricted to the historical restoration of the temple to its 8th century appearance. The final goal was to upgrade Yakushiji to the status of head temple of the Hoso sect, a position held by the Chinese temple until the communist revolution. The relics of one of the sect's founders, the Chinese monk Suan Tseng, or Genjo Sanzo in Japanese, were brought to Japan in the 1940s. In 1979, Nishioka, Professor Ota and Abbot Takara took the first step towards the creation of a new complex to house these relics. The construction of this complex, properly known as the Genjo Sanjo-in, but referred to simply as the Sanzo-in, was decided upon at the end of 1979, prior to the completion of the new pagoda. So that is a very specific history of the Yakushiji project. But what I gleaned from this is that Nishioka was commissioned to build this complex or to restore it, not for the sake of just recreating something visually pleasing for people like you and me, tourists to go enjoy, or you know, for residents to enjoy. It has a much deeper use case, which is the housing of these relics. Nishoka discusses the spiritual requirements when designing a temple complex. The four gods are a Chinese concept concerning deities relating to the four compass directions. The azure dragon presiding over spring and the east, the vermilion bird presiding over summer and the south, the white tiger presiding over autumn and the west, and the black tortoise presiding over winter and the north. Nishioka described these deities as metaphors for natural forces associated with aspects of topography and the environment, geomantic principles, which have practical implications. The Azure Dragon is a pun that also means clear stream in Japanese. According to Nishioka's tradition, a good temple site will have a stream or river to the east, which is important primarily as a water supply that should make use of spring floods. The Vermilion Bird, sometimes translated as Phoenix, refers to a lake or marsh to the south, on ground slightly lower than the temple complex, which is important for adequate drainage during the rainy season. The white tiger symbolizes a wide road to the west of the temple, important for transporting materials easily when the temple is under construction and for preserving the prominence and status in future generations. The black tortoise, usually depicted as a tortoise and snake together, is a mountain shaped like a tortoise's shell. Unless there is one to the north of the temple complex, the complex will be too exposed to the northern winds of winter. And in fact, Kyoto, I think, perfectly provides this geography as the capital, and that, I think that's why it was chosen as the capital, actually. It mimicked the Chinese concept, which also came from Beijing. So I think Beijing and Kyoto have a lot of uh, urban similarities. And in Japan, there's four temples, each of them acting as one of those four animals. Um, I, I'm not going to be able to do it off the top of my head, but it's so it's cool so that, so that the next time that you go to Kyoto, you can visit these four temples and you can understand the philosophy behind the way the city was laid out. Asby Brown goes back into this discussion of what makes a Buddhist temple, what makes this building come to life. 
Regarding of the specific design, a Japanese Buddhist temple essentially provides a setting for contemplation and prayer, usually in the presence of religious paintings or sculpture. Good deeds, in the form of offerings of money, incense, and food, are performed according to prescribed rituals, and there is usually an area set aside for rest and refreshment. Passage through a temple is a kind of ritual in itself, a process of crossing through successive gates, penetrating deeper and deeper into the temple sanctuary. Just another thought I had is, while we re-go through this book, something that we can learn from Hasby Brown is, uh, and we learn all this interesting history about Japanese temples, so the next time that you come to Kyoto, or, or the next time you visit Japan, uh, you'll have a much deeper understanding of of the spiritual and cultural context, and so when you visit temples, you'll be able to have a deeper experience, I think. Uh, temple buildings are almost always set apart on raised platforms, which require the ascent of several steps before reaching the doorway. Doors are generally massive, with a large sill, which must be deliberately stepped over. The size of the doors is partly due to the absence of windows to admit light, although this depends on the specific building. A large sand-filled brazier is usually set before the doorway so that visitors may burn a stick of incense before entering, a form of purification. The difference in light levels between inside and outside, one of the most striking features of most temples, is intentional. Due to the broad eaves and relatively small openings for lighting, most all the light that penetrates the interior is what has been reflected upward from the ground. The effect of this dim light, magnified in effect as it strikes the delicate gilt statuary and fittings, together with the incense-laden air, is moving and mysterious. When one realizes that this type of atmosphere has survived essentially unchanged from antiquity, the sense of continuity with the past can be profound. The psychological effect arises from an environment that stimulates all of our senses, the coolness of the interior, its dimness and muffled acoustics, the mingled aromas of candle wax and incense, and an almost palpable memory of the tastes of tea, rice cakes, and small temple sweets. That such surroundings are highly evocative of the hope and despair of countless generations, and their striving for purity is not incidental. It represents, rather, millennia of refinement and evolution in design, wherein the most profound aspects have been retained and the rest modified slowly over time. It was probably this overall consistency that caused the fellow I encountered on the train in Nara to remark, quote, They all look the same. That is such a beautifully written passage. Yeah, it's true. The The preservation of ancient wisdom exists in great concentration in those temples. So I, if that doesn't fire you up to go visit a temple, I don't know what does. So now we get into the part of the book where Asby Brown starts to build a relationship with Nishioka, this master carpenter. And he discusses... Um, woodworking in general in Japan, the, the role of the master carpenter, and then the Yakushiji project itself. So he says that uh, Japanese carpenters, or daiku, are considered members of a class of worker known as shokunin. Usually translated as craftsman or artisan, the word shokunin has a strong ethical and spiritual nuance in Japanese. The use of the term, like that of daiku, has evolved over the centuries, but the essential values the term implies persist. The shokunin, in addition to repaying a debt to nature, incurred by his exploitation of the earth's resources, must fulfill his obligation to society, primarily by doing whatever is required quickly, skillfully, and without waste. This ethical code and social consciousness is cultivated from the beginning of apprenticeship, which before the days of compulsory secondary education started as early as age 9 or 10. When a carpenter does a poor job, for instance, it reflects both on the client and on the master. In most cases, he is not allowed to redo the work, for that would entail waste. Everyone must live with the result. According to the craftsman code, this rule is applied to every task in life, even the menial and seemingly insignificant. The carpenter trained according to this tradition will not scoff at the most rudimentary task, says Nishioka, but will do any job that calls for woodworking even making wooden clogs with care and precision. So I don't know if you've watched that documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. It's so famous, and it's it's uh, it was on Netflix at one point, and I think it's it's available uh, online somewhere, or you could buy it, perhaps. But uh, they use that word shokunin all the time to describe Jiro, the sushi chef. And I think if you read, if you've watched that documentary, then you understand the essence of the shokunin culture. 
So the book is recalling a time when Nishioka was doing a checkup on Horyuji. So this is not the Yakushichi project that we're going to talk about later, but this is um, an old project that Nishioka was involved in. Thus, Fortune was smiling when it fell to Nishioka to oversee this rare dismantling and repair work at Horyuji to check up on, so to speak, the work of his predecessors of a millennium past. The old builders were people of art who approached their work with religious devotion, he said. They had no way to know how their creation would fare over the span of 13 centuries. The privilege of finding out fell to me. I felt like a highest level doctor of anatomy. In his consummately informed opinion, the buildings at Horyuji were good for at least another 2,000 years, provided they received regular checkups and proper management. And I think that, to me, 2,000 years, that just showcases the quality of work that's put into these buildings. And it, it's also, it helps me break the myth of, um, of Japanese building as... Uh, of poor quality or like this idea that they um, abandoned wood for cement in the in the postmodern era because it was more structurally sound or more earthquake safe or more fire friendly i mean for sure with wooden buildings you had earthquake issues and you had threats of fire but um with regular maintenance and care you know these these temples they last two thousand years like there's this myth that uh like european cities are much well preserved because they're made of stone versus Japanese architecture, which didn't last because it was made of wood. Uh, I don't. I don't think that's true. You know, I think the Japanese made a conscious decision to stop using wood, and it was a mistake. But like they have the the deep knowledge within their tradition to continue making beautiful buildings that can last forever. They just have to make the decision rather than make the decision to go for expediency and build quick, sturdy, concrete, ugly buildings. So actually, this next section kind of goes perfectly into that little rant I had. Academics, he said, can be very foolish. They take simple things and make them difficult. Japanese society today measures people by their education credentials, with the lamentable result that other equally valid ways of learning are being forgotten, even though they're backed by 1,300 years of experimental observation in Japan alone. And this has happened so quickly. In a mere 100 years, 13 centuries of accumulated knowledge has been allowed to leak out of our culture, not just in architecture, but everywhere. Because the craftsman knowledge is based on experience, on endless repetition and refinement, and on direct imitation of a master's methods, a technique or attitude disappears with its possessor, if not passed on through use. After the demise of a living tradition, one can analyze its artifacts for clues to their creation or try to reconstruct the methodology based on writings or oral traditions, but something essential is inevitably lost. During the pre-modern era, there was an active dialogue among carpenters and a sense of competition, which resulted in constant innovation and perceptible improvement in skill for the craft as a whole, all done while struggling against a progressively diminishing quality of available wood. The traditional means of training carpenters, which has long produced a steady stream of highly skilled craftsmen through a self-regulating apprenticeship system, has now been almost completely dismantled in favor of universal standardized education geared towards the production of office workers and technicians. Carpentry, even temple carpentry, is far from being a lucrative occupation, partly because the Japanese value system has come to disdain manual labor. Young people? No. They don't want to do this kind of work anymore observed Nishioka Riley. Most carpenters seem to agree that actual development in the sense of positive innovation and improvement is no longer possible in the field. It is impossible to improve on the ancients, Nishioka insisted. They are incomparably better. The most I can do is keep a small fraction of their knowledge alive. And reading that is so disheartening, but I saw this firsthand for sure. I was hired as an English teacher in the Japanese public education system, in Kyoto specifically. Yeah, the public education system which really ramped up during the industrial era, so 1900s, the very beginning of the 1900s. He created a very rigid educational system that mandated everybody to go to school and mandated everyone to take the same classes, the same curriculum. Like there was just no diversity at all. Everyone was required to go to school from nine to five, split up in one hour periods. And the effects 
of that education system on Japanese society cannot be understated. And this example of architecture and the disappearance of the apprenticeship system and the disappearance of ancient knowledge is a perfect example of what happened and what's happening. And the thing that's so interesting is, uh, so I, as you know, at this point, I volunteer my time at this carpentry group in Kobe. And there's a f couple of guys that I work with, and they told me that they did terrible in school. Like they were often absent. They didn't, they, they hated it. I mean, I could totally understand. I think I would probably, if I grew up in the Japanese edu education system as a young boy, I think I wouldn't have succeeded. I think it's, it's so constraining and so demoralizing. So I, I understand where they were coming from. But now they work at this carpentry group. They're apprentices for this, for the head carpenter. And they're happy. They, they enjoy the job. It's manual labor. It's, it's an honorable thing. And I love it. And they love it. But the sad thing is that a lot of people that go through the education system, they're, they're told to go to high school and then to college and then to get an office job. And so they don't have the opportunity to experiment with an apprenticeship or to try to go into carpentry. Like that pathway exists still. You can apprentice for a sushi chef or for a carpenter or for, or for any kind of shokunin, but it's becoming so uncommon and it's not valued as highly as getting a consultancy position at some kind of firm in Tokyo. And it's very sad. And it is a tragedy. Here's another thing. In order to maintain continuity with the past, one of the master carpenter's most vital functions is that of education, training those who work under him. In real terms, this means providing them with the best possible example and allowing them to learn through observation and experience. And that reminds me of my previous podcast I did, I think it was episode 42, talking with Steve Bimel who uh, he runs the Japan 21 organization to support artisans. And he also works with that master carpenter in Kyoto. And I went, I went to a workshop where I learned how to create a joint using ink and a saw in the old fashioned way. So that master carpenter, according to Hasby Brown here, is doing a most vital function, which is providing education. And so... Steve Bimel is doing a great thing, helping financially to support those kind of programs, to get young carpenters under the wings of those master carpenters to preserve that knowledge, and hopefully to create a vibrant system where we, as he said earlier in the book, um, to create active dialogue among Japanese carpenters and a sense of competition, which resulted in constant innovation and perceptible improvement in skills for the craft as a whole. You know, that's what we need. But that only happens when you have many Japanese carpenters talking to each other and doing great work. Next, I think I'm going to read my favorite passage in the entire book. And it's specifically about Nishioka himself. Indeed, the most remarkable thing about Nishioka was his sense of time. Time as measured in centuries and in millennia. His viewpoint was purely Buddhist. Time is cyclical. The universe is constantly being destroyed and remade over countless eons, throughout all of which our spirits are intact. Life is painful, especially when compared with the intervals between death and rebirth. If a carpenter dedicates himself spiritually to the construction of a temple, and that temple lasts a thousand years, then he will have a thousand year interval between his, this life and the next. Consequently, that thousand years really isn't very long. And when you think that a tree takes a thousand years to grow large enough to use for a temple column, and that the temple may stand for a millennium or more, even a decade spent in its construction is infinitesimal. Nishioka believed that one should take as much time as necessary. One should concentrate completely all the while and be in good spirits, because a craftsman's frame of mind permeated every aspect of his work, and the work would bear the imprint of its creator as long as it existed. Yeah, that kind of philosophy just reminds me of this idea that you have no idea how your actions today will echo into the future and also how your actions are going to affect someone that you meet on the street or, or some friend that you have or words that you say, how, how those echo into the future of their lives. And so it's like we're all interconnected. But then also you're connected through the, your ancestors because even if they've passed, 
like their actions still echo into today. So I think it's a very profound idea. It definitely far exceeds just his profession, but it's uh, his way of life, his philosophy. In the chapters following, he, he discusses the Akushiji project, which I will get into. But then throughout the book, it starts to get very detailed, as I said earlier, where he starts talking about the temple design, and then it goes basically step by step. So you have to select the wood, then you have to fabricate the parts, and then you have to, he has a section about tools that you use, how to make joints, and then actually how to erect the, the structure, step by step. So in this sense, I think the book is good to read if you yourself are trying to do some kind of DIY work, because uh, it, can, it can help definitely give you some inspiration. It's not a how-to book, it's not a, it's not a textbook, but it's, um, it has some very specific details that you can definitely apply to your work. So I would recommend reading it if you're in the middle of a construction process or if you're getting started. Here's a good example of, of where the, the spiritual kind of meets the practical. Every tree is an individual, though influenced strongly by its growing environment. Each tree develops a unique set of characteristics, idiosyncrasies, that can be called its habits or personality. A particular tree may be prone to twist clockwise because it was subjected to strong winds from the east while growing, while another may tend to bend as it releases tension caused by having heavier branches on one side as a result of how the sunlight reached it. If wood like this is mated with others that have opposing tendencies, the result will be structurally more secure and the finished building less prone to distortion. Accurate measurement cannot be overlooked, of course, but in itself, it is not sufficient for good work. Yeah, so I think later in the book he talks about the difference between trees that are that grow on the top of mountains versus trees that grow within valleys and how you should use them. I'll try to find that for you, but uh, it has this kinds of these kind of uh, practical tips for be people in the building industry or construction. Here we get into the concept of team because carpenters cannot work alone. Building a temple requires the effort of many people. Craftsmen have habits and idiosyncrasies, just as wood does, and in order to build a unified team that works with one mind, it is essential to recognize each carpenter's individual tendencies and assign tasks that utilize them to best advantage. Not only is it impossible to make each worker identical in ability, it is undesirable. He talks about the workshop of where they were building the pieces, because the way that the carpentry works is they build individual pieces of wood and then at the construction site it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle where they all have their piece and they piece it together one by one but each individual part is constructed in a workshop so he says the workshop is spacious enough for about eight different major operations to be carried out simultaneously generally speaking one assistant master undertakes the fabrication of an entire set of identical components assisted by a junior apprentice from time to time. The carpenters confer with each other frequently, but interference in another's project is taboo. Each takes full responsibility, not only for his own work, but that of his helper. Initial shaping is now usually done with power tools, but it can be carried out by hand. Use of power tools is discouraged until the apprentice has mastered the requisite hand tools. The aim is to provide the carpenter with as many options as possible. It is not uncommon to see a carpenter laboriously cutting or planing a board by hand when an electrical tool would be faster and equally accurate. Hand tools, particularly Japanese hand tools, provide a tremendous amount of subtle, tactile information about a particular piece of wood. The delicate readings and detailed observations possible when working slowly by hand are lost with a noisy, dangerously gyroscopic blade or drill. But again, the choice of tools is personal. The apprentice sometimes finds himself the victim of conflicting suggestions, forced to remember each of his senior's predilections in order to avoid criticism. Fundamentally, there is no operation that cannot be carried out through the judicious application of saw, hammer and chisel, and plane. Last thing I'll say here is one remarkable fact alluded to above is that each carpenter works in relative isolation. His templates, plans, and knowledge constitute only a partial picture of the overall interrelationship among the parts. When instructed to provide a mortise, he provides it. When instructed to shape a compound curve, he shapes it. 
while it is dangerous to generalize, it is probably safe to say that a Westerner, particularly an American, often finds it difficult to perform complex work without understanding exactly how his job relates to the whole. As a result, he asks a lot of questions. There's perhaps an underlying belief that if one understands the overall intention, one may be able to avoid errors or even improve upon the design of one's superior. This does not seem to be the case with the Japanese carpenter. He may not always know who is making the tenon that will serve his mortise or why the curve is necessary, but he is fully confident that if instructions are followed, the pieces will fall perfectly into place. In short, he trusts not only his superiors, but his colleagues, as well as the system in which they work. This is an outgrowth of, and the reason for, the long apprenticeship. So I thought that was an interesting contrast between Western and Japanese construction uh, practices from a team perspective. I'm assuming, though, that the Japanese carpenter eventually becomes a generalist when they become a master, because they have to oversee everything. But I guess within the confines of, of apprenticeship, they, they just kind of stick on one task. Earlier, I was talking about the, the practical information about trees. So I found it. So I'm just going to read it for you here. Because uh, I think it was one of the most practical pieces of knowledge that, uh, that you can take from the book. So he says, the tree's position on the mountain results in different characters of wood. Structural members, particularly columns, should be used in the same orientation they had when alive on the mountain. So that's interesting. So you should, like when you, before you cut down the tree, you should mark which side of the, the tree was facing north. And then when you're getting ready to put that in the temple, make sure that north is still facing north. Very subtle, but I, I guess um, important technique. Valley wood, the product of a moist environment, is only suitable for ceilings. So he says here that uh, the, thickest, the thickest and strongest wood is the wood that grows on the top of mountains. If it's um, growing on a hill, then it's thinner and straighter. And then at the very bottom, at a, on a valley, the trees are generally moist and weak. So if you see, if you have a tree that's grown from a valley, you can only use that for ceilings and other non-structural pieces. They should not be used as beams or large structures uh, or columns. So I'm going to skip through a lot of the very detailed information about fabricating parts, tools, making joints, um, the erection of the picture hall. Uh, if you want the, if you want to get the full picture, make sure to buy the book because it goes into very great detail and has step-by-step um, -step imagery. Um, I'm going to go into one of my favorite chapters, which is Secrets of Enduring Carpentry. And I, I just like this section because there's a lot that goes on in temple construction that is naked to the untrained eye, so that the next time that you go visit a Japanese temple, or, or Shinto shrine for that matter, uh, you will have a deeper appreciation for just how meticulous this craft is. Temple components are relatively large, but their dimensional tolerances are very fine, particularly in the case of surfaces that will remain visible. Allowances must be made for wood movement, expansions and contractions due to changes in temperature and humidity, gradual deflections under load, cumulative shrinkage from moisture loss in the wood's inner cells. For these reasons, craftsmen speak of wood as alive and breathing. One level of mastery lies in accuracy. Straight lines are perfectly straight, joints snug, curves gradual and even. Another level entails the same degree of accuracy, but takes wood movement into account. Will this joint still be snug a hundred years from now? Will this curve remain attractive after sagging under a century of load? So I love that because the craft, is, it takes such a long view in mind. And it's so counter to the modern construction industry that we have today, which is so short thinking. And it's because it's mechanized, because now we have robots that can make things perfectly straight. We don't need joints because we can just use screws, which are also perfectly snug. And so we don't have to think about this question of, will this joint still be snug 100 years from now? Or um, do we need to create space for this, this wood to contract and expand uh, during its lifetime? We don't ask these questions anymore because everything's become mechanical. 
We use metal, we use glass, uh, we use cement, and we use electronic tools that are basically perfectly accurate. We don't need long-term thinking anymore uh, in order to build. But then through reading this book, you understand just how much wisdom is lost when we take on and practice these techniques. Another example of this critique is with tools. He has tool. He, he talks about axes and saws that they use. And there's also this thing called an ads. I think that's English, ads. But in, in Japanese, it's called chona. And it's a hand forgery tool. He's got a picture of one of these tools. And he says in the caption, the curved handle of this chona was made by its owner to suit his own body. So you see this example again of things being handmade, being custom to the individual. It's very personal, right? Like that tool only fits that one person. Um, whereas today things are standardized. This is this is awesome. It is sometimes said that the tool is the soul of the Japanese carpenter, just as the sword was the soul of the samurai. The comparison is apt in many respects. To be more specific, the tool is the means by which the carpenter leaves a trace of his spirit on the soul of the tree, the medium through which the, a marriage of souls is brought about. As a result, carpenter and tool serve each other, and together they serve the tree. There are regular occasions, such as at New Year's, when the carpenter expresses his gratitude for the service his tools have rendered. Offerings of sake and rice cakes are made, and the carpenter promises, despite the great abuse his tools have endured, to treat them with greater respect in the future. I love that. Where does he say? Uh, the medium through which a marriage of souls is brought about. That's so awesome. So it's like your soul and the soul of the tree is getting married. These two living things, the tree and the human, work together to produce this living building, basically. So that's certainly a religious idea, but it's also a very modern conservative idea. And when I say conservative, I'm talking about nature conservation. I think the Japanese like Buddhist Shinto ethos is one of deep reverence for nature. I think joinery is an aspect of Japanese carpentry that fascinates foreigners, and for good reason. It's remarkable. And so he has a really wonderful history of joinery throughout the world. And uh, I'll just read the part that I thought was most enlightening. Western wood joinery reached another peak in Tudor, England, where it was often used in church spires and other monumental structures. Later, English immigrants to America took with them a highly advanced repertoire of joinery techniques, most of which survived there, as in Europe, until the late 19th century. It is interesting to note that during this entire period, the economic viability of wood joinery depended upon a low cost relatively to other means of connection, metal fasteners such as bolts, nails, and the like, which had existed since the earliest eras, but were often prohibitively expensive. In the West, this situation changed rapidly with the Industrial Revolution, when both cheaply milled lumber and mass-produced nails became common. By the early 20th century, architectural wood joinery had virtually disappeared. Then he goes on to talk about how Japanese joinery today has a history from an archaic way of building from the Chinese and Korean style that was passed on. Nishioka also believed that the ancient carpenters were incomparably better than modern-day artisans, and yet to this day, advanced joinery can be found throughout Japan. Most houses, when constructed in wood, feature traditional joints reinforced with hardware, thanks partly to newly developed computer-assisted milling machines that mass-produce jointed timber frames. Nevertheless, all agree that the days of joinery are numbered. Prefabricated housing and 2x4 construction have proven to be economical, efficient alternatives. Later throughout the chapter, he goes through how to create joints. It was really cool to see the photos because it reminded me of my experience with uh, Steve Bymel and being able to carve my own joint because uh, I recognize what exactly what they're doing in the photos so it's it's uh, really incredible to see this kind of work still existing but as I said earlier and as Asri Brown mentioned again this kind of practice is disappearing to end the book I will read this wonderful section about the ridge beam ceremony which is the ceremony that transforms this building into a temple one highlight of the construction process was the raising of the uppermost beam. It was a cause for celebration. True, the job was not entirely finished. A thousand details needed attending to over the following months, but the structure was finally a building. 
The roof was not yet fully enclosed, but it was a roof, and the spirits could reside beneath it. This is the meaning and purpose of the ridge beam raising ceremony. The old spirits that dwell on the property, be they rice field spirits or forest spirits, are kindly asked to vacate the premises and are given numerous inducements to do so in the form of food and gifts. The spirits of heaven then lowered the ridge beam, suitably adorned, into place. These new deities do not take up residence as yet. That would occur at the formal enshrinement ceremony, after everything was really finished, but the building was now a temple. Given that in Japan, there is a peaceful coexistence between indigenous Shinto deities and their imported Buddhist counterparts from China, the ridge beam raising combines practices from both faiths. The carpenters, accordingly, dressed in the vestments of Shinto priests for the day, led by the master in appeasing the Shinto spirits of the earth and wind with songs and gifts. Buddhist priests, meanwhile, read the sutras and made offerings of incense. Then, at the climactic moment, each priest held one end of a long-colored banner, symbolically dangling the ridge beam from heaven, while carpenters above tapped the beam into place with ritual tools made specifically for the occasion. All then retired to an adjoining hall for a celebratory feast, including copious quantities of sake, served for once by the masters to the lowly. And that is where I will leave it for now. If you want to get the book, it is The Genius of Japanese Carpentry, Secrets of an Ancient Craft by Asby Brown. Highly recommend it. It gives you a window into an incredible corner of Japanese culture.